everybody. I'm Michelle Danilock, a professor of food microbiology at the University of Florida, and I'm with... I'm Chris Gunter, a professor and vegetable production specialist at North Carolina State University. We want to welcome you uh, again to our short series of podcasts we've put together with the fantastic help and support of AFTO uh, to cover the educational content that we planned on sharing at the NASDA Produce Safety Consortium Educators Pre-Meeting Workshop that was scheduled to take place in March of this year. Uh, instead of trying to put everybody together in some sort of a webinar uh, or another type of online content, we decided to recreate the experience that we'd, we'd planned on giving you um, during that workshop with a, this series of short podcasts to have organic discussions with all of our presenters, for them to share their insights into some of the science behind our favorite topics in the produce safety rule. Our guest on this episode is a water quality specialist and professor at the Maricopa Agricultural Center uh, for Environmental Science at the University of Arizona, Dr. Chana Rock. Chana, did I miss anything? You got it. You got it. Great. And thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And for those of us who don't know um, about you or about what you do, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got involved in working on food safety risks uh, associated with irrigation water? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, as Chris just mentioned, I'm a water quality specialist with Cooperative Extension. Um, I joined the University of Arizona a little over, what is it, 12 years ago. Um, my background is actually in civil and environmental engineering. Um, and as well as microbiology. So I was the non-engineer in all the engineering courses asking about all the bugs in the wastewater treatment processes. So um, I found this position uh, kind of through chance. I was working uh, with some folks at the USDA on surface water quality monitoring and learned more about cooperative extension and, and knew that they had a need for uh, water specialists, so applied and was able to get the position. And for a while, I worked a lot in non-point source water quality monitoring. So we worked pretty closely with our Department of Environmental Quality to work with local stakeholders to assess non-point source pollution. And a lot of that work was on generic E. coli detection. It wasn't really until the last couple years, I'd say maybe the last five years, that I actually started down this path of working with uh, produce folks, um, kind of on all different aspects, but really focusing in on water quality, water quality assessments, uh, root cause analysis, risk assessment, treatments, um, kind of all that good stuff. So. Um, I still learn a ton every day about the food safety components of the work that we do and, and how we can kind of take some of those um, aspects that I have expertise in and kind of overlay that um, in the food safety world. Perfect. Thanks, Chana. So one of the things I know I've heard you say before when we've been talking is that you talk a lot about site-specific assessments and site-specific assessments really being a gold standard when we talk about um, figuring out or assessing irrigation water quality and potential risks. Can, can you explain to me and, and, and the listeners what you mean by a site-specific assessment? Yeah, so um, we work pretty closely with industry to get them to really try to hone in and better understand 
their water sources that they might be using as part of their portfolio uh, for produce irrigation and um, really trying to focus in on what are the unique attributes of those water sources and in your specific location and how you can learn uh, more about that through boots on the ground assessment uh, so that you can understand what is normal or what is baseline for you and what is outside of that normal baseline and, and when you start to see those deviations. Um, I think that, you know, we're constantly trying to develop new tools and um, inform our decision making about our water resources. And I think all that's great. So um, we might talk a little bit about modeling um, here in a bit. But what I really like to always try to drive people back towards is, is what is going on locally? Um, what are you doing in addition to you know, that water sample collection that you might be doing as part of um, a metrics um, that you're following to really understand what that localized source water looks like and, and when um, that might shift or change or be a little bit different. And so one of the things I've, I've heard you talk about when you've talked about doing a site assessment is something called a sanitary survey. Um, and it might be something that, that the different folks listening have heard of before too, but might not have a good idea of what, what, is, what you mean when you say a sanitary survey. So can you let us know what you mean when yeah, you sure. say a sanitary survey? Yep. So sanitary survey is kind of a term that um, throws back to public water systems. And so if you're looking at, you know, historical um, assessments in a public water system being like a drinking water system or a small community system, they often use the term sanitary survey. Um, and it's really to assess um, their capability locally to supply, you know, safe water for their customers. And so we like to kind of overlay those core concepts or topics into produce production and, and looking at what could be some things that could influence uh, your water quality. So, you know, in Arizona, uh, primarily most of the agriculture that I deal with are looking at surface waters, right? And so not a ton of groundwater, um, not a lot of um, municipal water is supplied for produce production. So when we're thinking about surface waters, we're trying to get folks to obviously collect samples close in and to go out and assess maybe where they might be collecting water samples in their ditch right before their turn off to their field. But really, again, try to broaden their scope a little bit to walk further out, drive further out, take a step back and kind of look at things holistically um, that might lead to changes or fluctuations in that water quality. So some examples um, might be that distribution system. So what's going on in the canal upstream of you? Is there canal maintenance going on? Do we know about animal intrusion events that could be occurring? Um, did someone else next door have issues or, or problems? What about back flushing? You know, do you have someone upstream that is doing um, drip irrigation that's back flushing into the, the canal? You know, lots of different little things that unless you kind of get out there to to do a visual survey or a boots on the ground sanitary survey you might not necessarily um, be aware of or privy to that information i think additional things that that we often uh, don't think about 
are um, surrounding land use activities. And so you really got to get out there, right? And, and I think the biggest question that we get is, well, how far away do I really need to go? You know, and it's kind of up to your own comfort level. But, you know, you've got to understand where your water, you know, source is coming from and are there potential influences before it gets to you on your farm um, that you maybe need to pay a little bit more attention to. Um, and I think that's a big one that we that we're trying to get folks to to really kind of think about um, both those little site specific things locally, but then also kind of a little bit broader as well. So you, one of the things you mentioned there was um, some of the things you've seen when you, you've seen a problem. And you mentioned, uh, you know, canal maintenance events and animals and surface water. Um, and I can certainly talk about some of the experiences I have and things we've seen trigger surface water quality changes in Florida. But what, what are, you know, can you give us some examples of what kind of animal intrusion events you're, you're talking about? Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, we've kind of seen a gamut um, run, but I would say a, you know, really vivid example is when we've had events where sheep might have fallen into the canal. You know, they've breached their um, area that they've been doing grazing, you know, obviously not on a produce field, um, and they, you know, unfortunately get into the canal. We also see that with deer and other types of rodents as well. And, you know, one thing is the animal, right, in that surface water, but the second is what, what else are they doing? Are they defecating? Are they kicking up sediment? Um, and how's that stuff being dislodged in that system? And then how quickly is that purged from the system? You know, obviously these are flowing, in most cases, flowing water systems, which we're fortunate, you know, to have that, that can kind of move through the system. But how long does it take uh, to get that through before we can re-enter a safe period of time? We were just talking a little bit about the um, about system assessment, and I really had a question about working with growers directly when you are taking water samples. Like, what advice do you give growers about taking water samples? How do they collect water samples? And um, and that kind of that aspect of it. Yeah, so we're actually really fortunate um, to be working with industry, at least leafy greens growers um, in Arizona and California, who are pretty well versed in water sample collection. So they've been collecting their water samples for a long time. But for folks that are new, um, we, you know, kind of go through, um, you know, all the way from you know how you handle you know your sample collection containers how you're selecting a laboratory um, the methodologies that um, you should be following um, per you know whatever metric or guideline um, that you're trying to follow but when we're uh, kind of boots on the ground trying to figure out well where it makes the most sense to collect water samples um, obviously the guidance that we've been trying to push forward is is locations that are closest to your point of use. Um, so is that on your canal or, or ditch at that turnout before it comes into your field or where you might be having the intake for your irrigation pump to be putting out um, for sprinkler irrigation. And so we certainly try to focus in on those areas. Um, I think kind of circling back though to kind of what I was talking about earlier in taking a little bit broader look um, at a potential water source. We also, um, although it's not mandatory, we also like to suggest that 
growers take samples above and below potential areas they might be concerned with or have questions about. And that can either confirm or deny at times um, what they might be suspecting about the influence of those locations on their water quality. Um, if they can build up enough data to make a compelling case that this is an issue, um, they can either go to you know, whatever that problem might be and say, well, this is what I'm seeing, or they can um, design an, another strategy to probably mitigate some of those potential water quality issues. Yeah, I like the idea that you're getting at with that sort of mapping where their data is coming from in these, some of these co very complex uh, canal systems. So can you talk a little bit about um, the influence of the sampling that a grower is doing in terms of things like, you know, the depth of the sample that they're taking or the time of day that they're taking those samples? Yeah, so we've seen, and I think if you look at the literature, you know, there's a, a handful of publications that provide some generalized recommendations about when to collect a sample, depth of sample. Um, we tend to always kind of fall back on US EPA guidelines, which talk about collecting water in the center of a flowing, you know, water body. So if it's a canal in the center of that canal, roughly six inches below the surface. Um, we always try to tell folks not to disturb or dislodge anything kind of that might be on the, the canal bank. Um, one of the questions that uh, we thought would be good to address is that a lot of these canals are um, concrete lined. Um, and so you might have a little bit of debris at the bottom, but not as significant as you might consider with like an earthen lined canal. I'd say the majority are, are concrete lines in the Southwest, but not all. And, and we still have some that are um, earthen lined. And so potentially if you're kicking up sediment, that's going to influence that result that you get um, in your generic E. coli or even total coliform bacteria numbers. And, and speaking of those numbers, can you talk a little bit about those um, test results and how you might help a grower to interpret that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, right now we're, we're going off of a couple different numbers, right? So we've looked at the uh, proposed FDA guidelines, looking at the geometric mean and the statistical threshold value for generic E. coli. So that's that 126 and that 410. Um, I think some of the good things that, that came out related to that was really trying to focus growers to start thinking about their water quality over a longer period of time, right? To de develop that baseline and to say, well, this is what's, you know, quote unquote, normal for me and, and start to pay attention to when you start seeing deviations for that. Um, we'll see what kind of finalizes out through the FCA. I'd say the other metric that we fall back on a lot of times is the leafy greens marketing agreement, which again, kind of mirrors some of those values that EPA value, that 126 um, colony forming units or most probable number per 100 mils of, of irrigation water is that kind of threshold line. Um, I would say, again, a good thing is that we generally, um, during produce production season in the Southwest, see our generic E. coli values um, usually about an order of magnitude lower than that 126. So we're, we're usually pretty good. But that also is a, is a good place to be able to say, okay, well, if we're normally 
you know, if nothing is occurring, um, we don't know of anything influencing water quality upstream is occurring, and we're at this level, and then all of a sudden you see numbers start to tick up, that's when we're going to tell people that they need to really think about getting boots on the ground, you know, starting to think about root cause analysis, and, and trying to cross off some of those things we talked about earlier about animal influence or canal maintenance activities or you know contamination of the sample by the sample collector you know really all of those things can happen um, and you really have to think about it systematically to try to uh, figure out why they're occurring and, and try to prevent that from happening again in the future. So Jana this ties us back into into something you mentioned right back when you very first started to introduce yourself about about point source contamination into these surface water sources and canals in general. And you, for me, are sort of one of those people that have been working with that EPA recreational water quality standard since before it was really cool for produce safety people to do that. You've been in this world a lot longer than most of us. So can you expand a little bit about um, point source, um, you know, what, what you might see if it was a point source of contamination versus what you would expect to see if it, if it wasn't? Yeah, great question. So um, just, you know, to start off, the differences between a point source and a non-point source, point sources are very easily identifiable, right? So you're thinking about a pipe discharge that's constantly kind of coming into a surface water, you know, say from a wastewater treatment facility or, or you know, anything like that. Um, Non-point sources are kind of diffuse throughout the area. So the best example that I usually give for non-point source is if you have animals that had defecated on the ground, you have a rainfall event, and then that could, you know, potentially be washed into a surface water source. Um, so again, that boots on the ground, you know, you're, it's easy, typically easy, quote unquote, easy to identify those point sources, but the non-point sources are the ones that are more challenging, right? And where monitoring can help you identify, are you having a point source issue or a non-point source issue? I'd say with point source issues, um, you might see, you know, some variation in water quality, but you're going to see that consistently over time. Right, you're going to imagine that that point source is constantly kind of bleeding into that surface water course in some circumstances. So, you know, say it was an illegal discharge, it's going to come up and then those values are going to stay there and then it might come back down uh, for generic E. coli. For a non-point source, they might be a little bit more sporadic. Um, and then you might correlate them with uh, rainfall events, for example, if we're talking about that runoff um, from uh, a land use issue. Um, so those are a little bit more tricky to track down, but if you have ideas about where those potential issues might be occurring and you can sample by bracketing above and below those areas, you might be able to, to better pinpoint. Um, I think, you know, there's things to the UPA values for generic E. coli. You know, in 2012, we saw some revision of, of what those values mean. You know, for a long time, that 126 uh, meant eight cases of gastrointestinal illness per 1,000 swimmers per year. Um, and then EPA decided to include some additional symptoms of individuals. I think it was fever was also included in as a symptom, and that upped the number of, of individuals um, that, that might be included. So um, while there, 
a good place to start from, it's challenging to see how they do or do not directly translate to food safety and produce production. Um, if someone's swimming in a surface water and is, you know, ingesting that water, splashing around in it and getting their exposure that way, that's a lot different than a water being irrigated onto produce and then going through the, the you know, processing chain or, or getting to your plates and then consuming that. Um, and it's not real direct correlation. I think another thing we often talk about is, well, you know, where did that value come from? And um, for EPA, that value is really looking at viral infections. So largely focusing on norovirus um, as the primary uh, pathogen of concern. When we're talking about produce production, it's not typically norovirus, right? We're thinking about things like 0157 and we're thinking about salmonella, um, mainly bacterial pathogens of concern. And so we all know, you know, bacteria behave a lot differently than viruses out in the environment and, and specifically in water. And so it, it can't necessarily be a direct uh, correlation there. I think that's a, a great uh, segue into the question I had because I, I really want to get into this kind of risk assessment. And I know you've done a lot of work in micro quantitative uh, microbial risk assessment, looking specifically at irrigation water um, practices. Um, can you talk a little bit about that leafy greens work and some of that uh, work that you've been doing? Sure. So a few years ago, uh, Dr. Chuck Gerba and myself had proposed to just do a really uh, initial, pretty rudimentary quantitative microbial risk assessment, um, focusing on that 126 value and looking at different irrigation practices, um, furrow, overhead, and drip irrigation to see if we could better understand was that 126 a viable number and what kind of risks could, you know, would or could be associated with that. And um, I think it was a nice first effort to be able to go down that path, but I, certainly there were a lot of assumptions that were built into that. So, you know, as you can imagine, you know, furrow irrigation had lower risk than drip irrigation had lower risk than overhead irrigation. Um, and so we were able to, to put some numbers to that. Um, I think the, the thing we've always kind of grappled with and, and we're frustrated with is that, again, that 126 value um, and, and what is an acceptable risk for, for produce. And really until we see um, the regulatory community, you know, so in this case, it'd be FDA coming up with an acceptable risk level for produce that's irrigated with whatever sort of water, um, you're really chasing your tail. Right, so there's no such thing as zero risk, and, and in order for us to be able to to calculate, well, what's an acceptable number? You got to have a target to hit, and if we can't hit a target, then then we don't know um, where we're aiming, I guess. Um, so you know, EPA made that uh, determination for them, right? For for surface waters, for drinking waters, for recreating, all of that, and so really, it, I think it would take FDA. Um, shifting course a little bit and providing a recommendation on an acceptable risk level. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't agree with you more. 
uh, on this topic. Um, and I hope that that, I do hope that that's something that, that FDA will do because I, I agree. I think really, and the, the only way to look at it through a quantitative model is to have a target or at least a, a sort of number to shoot for, you know, and whether that's one illness a year or eight illnesses a year or one illness every 10 years. Uh, Cause again, we don't talk about zero right and risk. We can't, we just can't get there. Um, and so I think I, I agree something really important. Um, so Jenna, you're pretty up to date on the literature in this topic area. Um, when you are looking at the literature that's out there, where, what gaps do you think exist and where do you really think more research is needed? Yeah. So um, obviously we've been focusing a lot on water treatment lately and, and trying to figure out how we can get that work um, for growers. I think a lot of times what we are finding gaps in is that, you know, the, the data and assessments are, are not universal, right? So we have a lot of diversity um, across produce growing regions in the country or in the world. And it's very challenging to be able to take something that worked really well in one location and apply it and expect it to work at that same level or efficiency in another location. So I think we really need to see some, some regional comparisons or standardization, maybe that's a better word, um, standardization in protocols and SOPs and validation studies um, so that we can make uh, better conclusions. I think we also have a lot of gaps related to microbial occurrence specifically in the environment, as well as the, you know, we talk a lot about die-off and, and rates of die-off. I think there's some really good work out there, but I don't think it's comprehensive enough. Um, so I think some of that um, is still needed as well. So I just want to follow up on a couple of things you said there, and I want to talk a little bit about, about treatment, because I think in a lot of ways you're at the forefront of the efforts related to water treatment uh, in the field uh, for, for produce safety. Uh, certainly, you know, your growers are, are using the LGMA requirements for treating water within 21 days of harvest, if it's surface water or what LGMA calls type A water. Um, and you're using it overhead on irrigation. Can you talk just a little bit about some of the challenges you're seeing those guys face? Yeah, absolutely. So you have to imagine that you're taking someone who previously had to turn a pump on um, and pressurize a system and now putting that person or a, a handful of people in charge of setting up validating and monitoring a chemical delivery system, right? And so that's a whole new set of skills um, that individuals are going to need. And I think that um, while there is good guidance out there, I think that it's, it's, they're going through growing pains right now, trying to troubleshoot when things don't necessarily go as according to plan. Um, and I don't think we've necessarily given industry the skills or the training yet uh, to be able to troubleshoot like we need them to. Um, and I think that that's hard. I think that there's also challenges with interpretation of the metrics, right? And we've seen kind of different shades of gray in how people are interpreting uh, those metrics. So the other thing that I heard you say um, when we talked 
about literature that I thought was, that I think is really important and that I think maybe we don't pay enough attention to is standardization and methods and being, being able to directly compare results, especially between regions and especially with variability in water, uh, water sources. Do you, um, you know, for people who might be new in this arena or be, be new to looking at and comparing regional results related to, to water quality and, and produce safety, do you have any advice for them? Uh, as they start reviewing papers? Yeah, so I think it's um, super important that, you know, if they're reviewing you know, work that's coming out, or even if they're in the developmental stages or design, right, of, of some of these research questions, um, is to really kind of comb the literature for whatever standardized set of parameters that they're going to be monitoring for, right? Because if you can standardize that, then that can be compared across regions. Um, I think that some of the challenges that we've run into, and I think it's just because we're just getting started with this, is you know what microorganisms are you going to be using um, in your challenge experiments? And you see a lot of different variability in that in the literature, and that's going to lead to a lot of different variability in what types of results that you might see for log reductions. Um, I think also. Um, what I didn't touch on earlier and, and I meant to was, was that we, you know, are really good as, as researchers to do some very controlled work in, in the laboratory setting, right, where we can control time and temperature and, you know, whatever parameter we kind of want to. But when we get out into a field setting where it really matters for these things to work, there's a lot of uncontrolled variables um, and that we at least need to be able to record and monitor or try to control to our best ability. Um, and then I think certainly recognize that things aren't always scalable. And if they're not scalable, then it's not gonna be workable for, um, for industry, right? Because they're gonna have to, to implement whatever those recommendations might be. So I think kind of always being cognizant and aware of what that end game is, right? Adoption by industry successfully um, and making sure that everything you're doing either in the lab scale or even as you're scaling up to field scale that, that you're addressing those. Jenna, can you give us a little bit of a take home message um, for growers and for extension staff who might be working directly with growers talking about water and water quality? Yeah, so I think um, we've probably talked a lot about scary things, <laughs> right, through this podcast, like all the things that could go wrong and, and all of the challenges that, um, that we face or, or others face. Um, but I don't think um, that they're insurmountable, right? I think that um, there's a ton of resources out there. I think folks like myself and others are, are working to address those challenges um, to design protocols and SOPs and standardization of some of the research really to um, better address industry need. Um, I think, you know, at a minimum, you know, start trying to understand your water sources better. You know, don't be afraid to collect a few more samples. I know it's a cost, but if, you know, a few more samples than you might normally need to for your metric. Um, and if you aren't sampling yet and start just to start getting a better understanding of, of where you sit, where your water quality might be, how that might fluctuate. And then whenever, you know, new regulations or metrics roll around, you'll be better prepared for that. 
Well, Shanna, thank you so much. We are out of time, but thank you so much for spending your time with us today and sharing all this fantastic information. Yay. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. And, and I'm sure that our listeners may have some uh, questions. And I can't thank you enough for the practical advice you've given us today. Um, and for all our listeners out there, we do hope that this uh, has helped you gain some understanding of the science behind these different aspects of the produce safety rule. And you'll find the links to the references that uh, Dr. Rock has discussed in this uh, podcast um, in our show notes, which will be made available. And if you do have any follow-up questions, please reach out to Michelle or I, or to, directly to Dr. Rock, if that's acceptable. She's nodding her head for us. Yeah, she's, she's nodded and given us a thumbs up. <laughs> I muted myself. Yeah, I'm good. Absolutely. Reach out. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, as we mentioned initially, this is our intent here was to share the content we developed for the NASDA Produce Safety Consortium Educators Pre-Meeting Workshop. Uh, and again, we can't thank both Chana uh, and AFTO and NASDA for the support that they provided us to, to bring this all together. Uh, if you like the content uh, or the format, please do let us, AFTO and NASDA, know. Uh, if there are other topics you'd like to hear about uh, in the future, uh, either in this medium or at the next NASDA Consortium Educators Pre-Meeting Workshop, or if you'd like to hear more uh, or have more questions for us to ask uh, Dr. Rock, please do also let us know. Yep, and thank you so much, and we will see you next time. <laughs>